you may not know this about me, but when I prepare and when I preach, I have very detailed notes. And even though I have detailed notes, sometimes I go off script, so to speak. And although I'm the one doing it, I get really nervous about it, as though I start asking myself, what are you doing? Um, It's not in your notes. Why are you talking about this? Last Sunday was a case in point. When I compared what Peter is writing about, the end that is the beginning, made the analogy of a pregnancy. I can show you my notes from last week. It wasn't in my notes. The child is alive in the womb, and the delivery for all its trauma marks both the end of the pregnancy and the beginning of life outside the womb. An analogy usually can't match all or every aspect of what it illustrates, but there certainly are strong points of comparison. Uh, It is worth noting that this is the language that Paul uses in Romans 8. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That may, in fact, be what caused me to go off script. That, that analogy, that use of labor pains as Paul looks to the future. Using or taking Paul's analogy, new life has begun in God's people. And it will continue after what Peter is writing about here in chapter 3. If you look at verse number 10, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And then verse number 12, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. That describes the ending, but in what we will look at today, we will see the beginning, the end that is the beginning. What we see here in this final chapter is Peter describing the ending of all things, but also the beginning in many ways. Last Sunday, we looked at two particular points, preparing for the ending, that's in verses 11 and the first part of verse 12. And then longing for the ending, the second part of verse 12 and then verse 13. As the New Testament pictures it, the coming of Jesus into the world marked the beginning of the last days. Let me read to you what I have before from Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The return of Jesus will mark the end of time, the end, if you wish, of the last days, and the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth and the home of righteousness. This means that in part we need to recognize that much of this reality is in fact transitory, is transient. I've mentioned this passage, I think, two or three times here in Second uh, Peter 3, but I want to read it again from 1 Corinthians 7. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, 
those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. As I've said, Paul's point is not detachment or escapism, but to be free of the control of this world. The things he mentions are not wrong. Marriage, mourning, being happy, buying things, and using the things of this world. What we are to be doing, however, is to be faithful in the places where God has put us. And if you look at the context of what Paul is writing, that is his point. We are to be faithful in marriage. As well, if one is not marriage, faithful in singleness. There's to be faithfulness in mourning. That is, we are not to mourn as those who have no hope. But there's nothing wrong with mourning. We are to be faithful in our happiness and being happy. Being happy about the right things and not resting in our sense of, well, I feel good today, I feel happy. Um, There's to be faithfulness in ownership. There's to be faithfulness in stewardship, using the things of this world. That's what Paul tells us about how we are to live. But what does Peter tell us about how we are to live, living as we do, between the personal creation, when God spoke the word, and the personal ending, the end of all things? If you look at verse number 7, he says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Just as a reminder, a side note, the way that Peter envisions things is that the end of time will not be some impersonal cosmic event. It will, in fact, be something that the personal, infinite God does. He is the one who will do this. It's not entropy, everything winding down and then it will all sort of blow up. God the Father will be the one who does this. So how are we supposed to live? What kind of people ought we to be? In fact, he says this. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Two things to note and by way of review. Will be destroyed in English sounds like a future, but as Peter writes it in Greek, it is a present participle. That is, that the process of destruction is now ongoing. And again, it's not some impersonal winding down of the universe. This is something that God the Father is doing in judgment. So we are, in fact, in the last days. We've seen that. And secondly, I mentioned that Peter uses the plural for holy and godly. He doesn't give us a list of do's and don'ts. Instead, he uses plurals that in holy forms of behavior, in godly deeds, this is how we are supposed to live. And the plurals strongly imply that there are many ways in which we are to do this. If Peter were to give us a list of do's and don'ts, that list would be very narrow. I think it would have to be. And there would be so many things that would be excluded we, wouldn't, we would wonder about. But here he doesn't give us a list. He simply gives us plurals. And we should know that there are many ways in which this is to be practiced. So what is to be our perspective? If we imagine that God simply wants to burn up the present world entirely and leave us as disembodied souls or spirits in heaven, then why do we worry about what we do here and now? What does it matter? What does it matter how we view or how we treat God's creation? On the other hand, 
if God intends to renew the heavens and the earth, as promised to the prophets in the Old Testament, then what we do in the present does matter. And how we view and how we treat creation really matters. As I mentioned last week, the word new that Peter uses is not the normal word, meaning something new in time or origin, but rather it means something that is new in nature or quality. Today we will look at verses 14, 15, and 16, and we continue with the question, what kind of people should we be? Look at verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. The link here is so strong. This is such a tightly constructed chapter. It's a link between looking forward. We've seen this in verses 12 and 13. As you look forward to the day of God, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. So the connection between that and what kind of people we ought to be. Just a side note, the NIV has, since you are looking forward to this, but most translations, in fact, have these. It is plural. Um, it is both the, ha- the hope of a new heaven and a new earth. I, I think the NIV simply puts it together as one entity, but uh, Peter sees it as two. So, we are looking forward, and what kind of people should we be? Again, in verse number 11, um, this question is asked. If you look at verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Our perspective should be toward the future, but we should not neglect the present. Peter spells out what kind of people we ought to be. Uh, two aspects are mentioned. But first, you'll notice Peter uses one of his favorite expressions, one of his favorite phrases, make every effort. We find this three times in the first chapter, in verse 5, verse 10, verse 15. In a real sense, again, Peter has come full circle. Where he began in the first chapter, he is now closing out this letter. Being a Christian does not mean that no effort is required. That somehow the promises are simply to be the fuel of our daydreams and of our hopes. No, in looking forward to the return of Jesus, we are to be fully engaged as believers. Two things here. First of all, we should be spotless and blameless. If you've read both letters, and we've gone through 1 Peter and now 2 Peter, the reader should, this should ring a bell. This should sound familiar. He has used this language, first of all, in 1 Peter with regard to Jesus. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So in the positive sense, he has used us. We are to be like Jesus was, without blemish or defect. But he's also used it in a negative way. Here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, uh, about the false teachers, they will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. So, we have a choice. Are we going to be like the false teachers who are blots and blemishes? Or will we be like the Lord Jesus, who is without spot and without blemish? In both cases, this language, the idea, comes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament sacrificial system. That which was to be sacrificed was to be without spot, without any defect. And the one who performed the sacrifice, the priest, was also to be without defect. Let me just read to you some passages. With regard to Passover, 
The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. Burnt offering, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. And then a fellowship offering. If someone offer, someone's offering is a fellowship offering and he offers an animal from the herd, whether male or female, he is to present before the Lord an animal without defect. I, I think, if nothing else, this points to the cost of sacrifice. That while you might say, well, I've got this, this sheep or this goat that's lame and I'll, I'll never get a good price for it in the market, that's what I will offer to God. No, it's quite the reverse. You pick an animal that is without defect. But having given an animal without defect, the one presenting it, the one who makes the offering, the priest, must also be without defect. No descendant of Aaron, the priest, who has any defect is to come to present the offerings made to the Lord by fire. So that if, in fact, a priest were lame or disfigured in some way, he could not, in fact, present the offering. This is not discrimination. This is the point to the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest in the future, the Lord Jesus, who would be without blemish or defect. The false teachers, on the other hand, are quite the reverse. They ruin everything they are a part of. Uh, N.T. Wright's new translation says, they pollute and stain the whole thing. Everything they touch is contaminated by what they do. So as followers of Jesus, it would make sense. It stands to reason that as we look forward to his return, the spotless, blameless Lamb of God, if we are following him, that we would be the same way. But then this raises the troubling question. Does it mean that we have to be perfect? Because if it does, we're all in serious trouble. What do we find in the rest of the New Testament about this? Let's back away from Second Peter. What does the rest of the New Testament tell us about this? In Ephesians 1, For he chose us, that is, God the Father chose us in Christ Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And then in chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to preserve present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Well, one might say, and one might argue, David, this speaks to being blameless due to the work of Jesus Christ. And that this refers to the future, that not right now, but when Jesus comes back, we will be blameless. We will be with God for eternity. And I would not disagree but there is to be some sense of continuity. Let me read to you from Colossians chapter 1. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Again, this would seem to refer to a future event. But it continues. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Stop and think a minute. Whenever we think of a connection between the past and the present, or the present and the future, we have at least three choices. The first is continuity. The second is discontinuity. And then the third is known as modified continuity. Simply put, 
If it is continuity, then everything continues the same as it always was. Well, we know from 2 Peter 3, that's not going to happen. Okay? That there is going to be an ending. So that doesn't work. Discontinuity, discontinuity means that nothing will continue as it has. And there are those who see 2 Peter 3 in this light, that there really is no connection between what's now and what will be later on. But that doesn't work either, because we will have a new heaven and a new earth. There is some connection, because if it's just all going to be brand new, then why call it heaven and earth? So the third option, what we're left with, is what we call modified continuity. That there will be some sense of continuity between this world, this life, and what is to come. That's why we are to continue in the faith, established and firm, as Paul wrote to the Colossians. And we are to make every effort to be found spotless and blameless. Knowing that we are, if you wish, in utero. We are in the period of the pregnancy. The birth has not yet happened, so to speak. When Jesus returns, then the new heaven and the new earth will come about. This means that we are not to be passive, that we are not to be doing anything. Again, the analogy of the pregnancy might break down at this point because the babies aren't reading books or listening to music and things like that. But I think if you would talk to Gwen or if you talk to Laura, I don't know if Stacy has experienced this yet, the babies are not passive. They're busy moving around. They are active. And we who are waiting for the final consummation are not to be passive either. We are to make every effort to be found spotless and blameless. And secondly, Peter says that we should be found at peace with him. We should be at peace with him. I mean, on the face of it, this may seem about a bit strange. I mean, how can you make every effort to be spotless and blameless and not be at peace with God? But Peter is again coming full circle, because if you go to the second verse of chapter one, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace means the generous heart of God who determines to treat sinful men and women as he lovingly wishes, not as we deserve. Peace means restoring all things to the way they were intended to be. I think this is important because we tend to think of peace as the absence of conflict. And so uh, we would say in this letter, chapter 2, the false teachers are at conflict, they're at odds with God. We, on the other hand, we should be at peace with God. But I don't think that's what Peter's saying. In the context here, he's talking about renewal and restoration. Things will be restored. And what will be restored? So many things, but primarily relationships. You will note, we talked about that when Adam and Eve sinned, so many relationships were destroyed. Adam's relationship with himself, psychologically, he was now afraid. He lacked integration. Socially, he was separated from his wife. Spiritually, he was separated from God. But when Jesus returns, all of these will be restored. The process has begun, but it will be finished when he returns.
And now verses 15 and 16, reconciling the two promises. You will remember that earlier uh, Peter spoke of two promises. Now he reconciles them. Look, if you would, at verses 15 and 16. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. In these two verses, I see Peter returning to these two promises. Um, just a reminder, in verses 8 to 10, he mentions two, the Lord's promised patience from the Old Testament and then the Lord's promised return from the New Testament. It is the matter of patience that Peter deals with directly, and I would say the return uh, indirectly. It might be a stretch, but I think it works. First of all, the promised patience. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Here, Peter draws a direct line between God's patience and salvation. We've seen the last couple of weeks from Psalm 90 that God's patience is seen, and we read it today in our confession, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Instead of die, dying on the day of our disobedience, Adam did not physically die on the day of his disobedience. We see great patience. Adam lived 930 years. The day that he was supposed to die was stretched to 930 years. Simply put, God is patient. And for Peter, there is a straight line. It isn't simply that God is laid back, but that he is patient and there's a line and it goes to the matter of salvation. Again, let's be reminded, what is salvation? It does not simply refer to what happens when we come for the first time in faith to Christ, when we give our hearts and our lives to him, when we repent. It refers to the process of salvation, which is past present and future in its totality. Again, a side note, it goes without saying, but I will say it anyway. What Peter writes about is God's patience with us, not our patience with him. See, in the earlier statement in verse number nine, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. There's the implication that we are the ones who are being patient with God, that We've been waiting for his return and, and we're trying really hard to be patient about this. It is really quite the reverse. It is God whose patience has extended that for the purpose of salvation. There are times, however, when we wait, as Gia read to us from Psalm 40 today, our reading from the Old Testament, when we wait on the Lord. But here Peter is emphasizing that it is God's patience that leads to salvation. The one who is truly patient is God. And God's patience is our opportunity. Earlier in this letter, in chapter 1, Peter wrote this. Add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Peter uses the imperative. He tells his readers, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And in fact, we could restate 
what he says by supplying what is understood. Make every effort to add to your goodness knowledge. Make every effort to add to your knowledge self-control. Make every effort to add to your self-control perseverance. Make every effort to add to your perseverance godliness. Make every effort to add to your godliness brotherly kindness. Make every effort to add to your brotherly kindness love. I don't know about you, but I'm going to need a bit more time. I'm going to need more time than I've had thus far on this planet to do these things. And this is God's patience. The fact that God gives us the years that he does is so that by his grace we can do these things. Actually, one lifetime is not enough for it. But it is his patience. By his grace, he extends the time allotted that we might do these things and become like his son, the Lord Jesus. That's the first promise, his patience. The second is his return. And in verse, the second part of verse 15 and verse 16, Peter seems to go off tangent when he refers to Paul's writings. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters. Um, what passage or what letters Peter's referring to, we can only guess. But Romans 2 certainly seems to fit the bill. However, he wrote that to the Romans and, and not to the people there in Asia Minor. We read to you from Romans 2, verse 3. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. He's saying the same thing Peter is. God is patient. God is giving you time. But if you do not repent, then in fact you are simply increasing the judgment, the condemnation that will come down the road. Paul understands in writing this to the Romans that he might be misunderstood. So he writes in chapter 3. But if our unrighteousness brings about God's righteousness more clearly, or brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument, he puts in parenthesis. One might say this is the argument of the false teachers. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. People read, they listen to Paul and Paul, this message of grace, it seems like you're saying that the more that we sin, the more that God will give us grace. So should we not, in fact, do evil that good may result? This is the twisting of what Paul had written. The problem, Peter faces it, Paul faced it. God's patience is mistaken for indifference. The fact that God is patient is misunderstood that, that he doesn't really care. It's like, whatever you want to do, whatever, that's fine. They should understand, as Paul put it, God's kindness leads you toward repentance. Or as Peter puts it, our Lord's patience means salvation. 
Peter tells his readers several things in this passage that both he and Paul agree, that both are misunderstood, that Paul writes things that are difficult to understand, which is of great encouragement to me. If Peter says they are difficult to understand, then I'm in good company. But lastly, he says that Paul writes scripture. This is a profound statement. Let me digress a bit, um, but by way of suggestion. And in interest of full disclosure, I will tell you that my view of the canonicity of scripture is not traditional. Uh, Canon is a Christian term. uh, That is, it's not a Jewish term. Um, We don't have the canon of the Old Testament until about 90 A.D. Um, It comes from the Greek word meaning a reed or a measuring rod. It means the norm, that this this is what is acceptable. Okay, this is canon. Okay, it is first used in the Bible in the fourth century. And so the traditional view of the canon of the Bible is that beginning about 393 up to 419, there were a series of church councils and the church agreed these 27 books are the New Testament. So it was by the church councils that the church established canon. In other words, what belonged in the New Testament took over three centuries for the church to decide. What about the Old Testament? Again, it's not a Jewish idea, but interestingly enough, in 70 AD, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, two movements remained. I mean, no longer temple worship, so no more sacrificial system. You have the Pharisees who are rabbis. That's what we have today, rabbinic Judaism. The other is the Christian movement. Now, why is it that in 90 AD, suddenly the rabbis decided we need to say what belongs in Scripture? The idea of Scripture was common enough, but why is it that the the rabbis got together and voted? I would argue it is because, in fact, the church had already done that. The apostles, who are the foundation of the church, had said, these 39 books, this is scripture. This is the Old Testament. And in my opinion, the apostles did the very same thing for the New Testament. It is the apostles who have established canon. They are the ones who have said, this is scripture. Thus, we hear Peter saying here something rather profound that what Paul has written is, in fact, Scripture. It is in agreement with Scripture, and it is Scripture. There is agreement about God's promises, his patience, and about his return. There is agreement that God keeps his promises. I would say, if, and I'm really suggesting my position, if you would say, Damon, I disagree with you, I hold to the traditional view, That's fine. But what I would tell you is, think deep, think a long time. Peter says that what Paul has written is scripture. That's a fascinating statement and one worth uh, considering. So, all this we've been through, in light of God's promises, how are we supposed to live? Well, Peter says we are to make every effort to be spotless and blameless. We should be at peace with God. We should use wisely the time he has given us because patience leads to salvation and we should believe his promises. And one might say to Peter, and why exactly should we do these things? Because we are headed to the home of righteousness. 
in conjunction with the new heaven and the new earth. What do you think the eternal state is going to be like? What do you think heaven is going to be like? I can only guess and at the same time assume that I'm going to be wrong about most of it. But there is something about which I am fairly certain. It is the home of righteousness, which means in part there will be no sin. There will be no disobedience. There will be no self-centeredness. There will be worship. There will be humility. There will be honoring one another. There will be relationships. We will not be independent, isolated beings just sort of hanging out on our own planet, however you might envision it. We will be part of a community, a heavenly community. And there will be work. It is the nature of God, and we are made in his image. God is a working God. We'll be busy. Well, in light of modified continuity, yes, things will change somewhat at the end, but there is a continuity between this life and the life that is to come, then maybe we should be getting rid of sin in our lives and disobedience and seek to be spotless and blameless and to be at peace with God and to worship and to be humble people and to be part of a community. Sometimes I think that people imagine this is how they see things. In this life, I'm going to do whatever I want And then when Jesus comes back, he's going to change me completely and I'll be a good person, a perfect person, and that's how I'll live through eternity. There's no sense of continuity whatsoever between this life and the life that is to come. I don't think that is correct. Otherwise, what Peter says makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, if it's all going to be burned up and we're starting all over from zero, then what does it matter what we do? I think that's what the false teachers are saying. And Peter is saying, listen, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There is an earth right now. Okay? It will be different, but there's a connection. In the same way that when we are resurrected, there will be a connection with this body that we have now. Because otherwise, why talk about resurrection? Why not simply talk about creation? You die, God takes your soul or your spirit and puts it in a brand new body that has no connection whatsoever to who you are here and now. No. Otherwise, again, what Peter says makes no sense. We are, in fact, in preparation. We are in the womb. We are preparing for delivery where we will begin our lives anew in the kingdom of God. Years ago, when I was working on my Ph.D., uh, I shared the pulpit with Dan DePew. And I remember one Sunday he preached about heaven. And I was sitting out there. Uh, by the way, Dan preached because my, my schedule at school was rather demanding. And he graciously shared the pulpit with me. But he preached about heaven. And I noticed that, that a significant portion of the congregation was sort of bored to tears, um, to put it politely. And so... I was righteously indignant. And, and I got up, and, and I remember I made the comment. I said, you know, I think some of you think that heaven is, is sort of like a movie theater that's showing, let's say, Rocky Seven or something like that, some awful movie. 
But it's raining outside. In fact, it's raining fire. That's hell. So, yeah, let's get inside the theater. At least we'll be safe. No connection whatsoever to this life. We are learning practices. We are to develop virtues now that we will be having then. Do you imagine that one could be... And again, when Jesus comes, things will change. But do you imagine that in this life you have no desire for the truth, that you prefer lies, and then suddenly you're going to love the truth? Again, what Christ will do will be remarkable in transforming us. But we are to love the truth now because we will love the truth then. We are to worship God now because we are going to worship God then. We are to be together now because we will be together then. There's to be this connection. God is patient. He's giving us the days, the weeks, the months, the years to work on these things. To add to our faith godliness. All these things that Peter writes about. So that when we get to heaven, we won't be like total strangers. Like, what's with all this humility? And what's with this business of relationships and loving the truth and worshiping God? It will be a natural uh, continuation of what has begun in this life. May God help us to see this. Let's pray together. Father, it seems to be the nature of things that we really don't understand things until they happen. Even in what Peter writes here, there's a certain vagueness, ambiguity. But help us to see that what is coming in the future is connected to this present life. We are to live now as we will live then. We are to be faithful now as we will be faithful then. Not self-centered now because we won't be self-centered then. You will be the center of our lives and you should be now. Help us to think about these things and work out the implications and then put them into practice in our lives. As we think and as we talk about the end of time. We are reminded of those that we are praying for. For Joyce, for Andrea, whose time here on this earth seems to be very short. May they have a sense of your presence with them in this dark time. May they know that you love them and you care for them. You have something better for them. There is continuity, but it's modified. We will have bodies without cancer, bodies without disease. We pray for their families, for Cheryl as she goes up and the family there in Alaska, for Paul as he's with Andrea. Give them strength and comfort them. Help us to number our days aright, 
one day that day will come for us. May we by your grace live as we ought to. I thank you that we could gather as your people in this place together to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.